Hello and welcome to this podcast, which is part of a series celebrating the life and works of England's most significant 20th century composer, Benjamin Britten. In making this series, I was lucky enough to interview several people who had worked with Britten, none of them more closely than Colin Matthews, who assisted Britten with several of his late scores, in particular the last opera, Death in Venice, and went on to become a distinguished composer in his own right, and also chairman of the Britten estate. When I met Colin at his home in London recently, I began by asking him if he could recollect when he had first encountered Britain's music. I'm not sure that I can remember the first encounter. I mean, the first thing I can remember vividly is the first performance of the War Requiem in 1962. And I was aware, both in advance of of what people were saying about it, and I I have a vivid memory of of listening to it the first time and being deeply impressed. And I think probably that was the time that, that Britain's music got through to me more than it had before. I think before then I was aware of it, but not didn't know it that well. I was still pretty young then. Was that well, while you were a student? Or, or no, this would be while I was still at school. I mean, that would have been I would have been sixteen in in nineteen sixty two. So, um, and and music at that time was a fairly new obsession. I mean, I had I played the piano as a child, like anyone does, but not until I was about fourteen or fifteen did I really sort of discover what music was really about. And um, with with my brother David, we both immediately decided, well, the only thing worth doing is composing. So we started writing music straight away. So Britain came pretty early on in that. But he wasn't a, I wouldn't say he was a major influence or that I felt that I was more, I was more interested actually in Tippett at that time. And the, the, the music Tippett was writing seemed to me to be more productive for me as a composer. So when later in the 60s you were you were doing some work at Faber Music that was really when you you came into to much closer contact with Britain so how did how did that um, involvement begin my brother in fact worked with Britain from the mid 60s um he'd met Donald Mitchell and my brother had an a, an extraordinarily natural musical hand so he as a copyist and editor he he was a, he was a natural and Donald suggested that he you know, he did some work for Britain and that clicked. So David worked from the time of, uh, I think, The Prodigal Son and, uh, no, The Burning Fire Furnace first, so from the mid-60s. But he found, I think he found the atmosphere of Alborough um, just a little bit too claustrophobic. And he, I think he stopped working for Britain in, in the early 70s and it, became a sort of natural progression that I took over but only in the short term I hadn't thought that I would I would work in the way I did because I, I was then called in, in in 1972 I was called in to rescue the vocal score of Death in Venice which was floundering rather the, the person who was doing it couldn't cope um, and from then on until until Britain's death I worked very closely and that was I, I didn't know at the time I took on Death in Venice how ill he was and that he was going to need this major operation and because of the position I was in, I mean, I then continued to work and, and work closely with him in the last few years of his life. Maybe for people who are not quite clear what a musical copyist does, you can just say what, mm. the, what, the, um, what the responsibility mm. was in, in producing, for mm. example, a vocal score. Mm. Well, to produce the vocal score of Death in Venice, I would receive in the post photocopies of Britain's sketches. And it was my job... Um, 
it's a mixture of copying and editing. I mean, that's, it's, it's to copy out neatly so that the singers could read from the score at Britain's Sketch, which tended to be written almost as if it was written for the piano, so only on two or three musical lines. And I had to tidy that up, make it very legible, and, and, and playable at the piano in a way that the sketches wouldn't necessarily be and then send it back to Britain. The the extraordinary thing there was the process that Britain would then mark it up by hand and send it back to me, and my job was to rub out all of Britain's (laughs) markings on on the page. Um, No, in those days, you couldn't instantly photocopy, and I never, stupidly, never thought to save one of these pages and and just recopy it. You didn't didn't feel the sort of angel of history looking over your shoulder? No, that's the strange thing, you don't. I mean, you know, I was doing a job, and I hadn't really thought of it in that context. Now, Now, when the manuscripts are so so precious and you touch them with gloves only it's it's a different world altogether so you're doing something which is which is both interpretative and copying at the same time so it's not it's not simply producing something in a fair hand you're actually producing something which will work on the piano which is which is in a in a different form when it comes through your letterbox yes it's i mean i think interpretive would be pushing it uh, to describe it but I mean it, it is that there is a creative role in what you're doing in making a vocal score uh, but on the other hand I mean Britain was uh, the way Britain wrote was as I said as if for the piano so it wasn't as tough a job as if you'd been for instance the job of if you were given an orchestral score and had to turn it into a vocal score that that is really complicated and in fact I for one work of Britain's the the cantata Phaedra that's actually what I did because Britain was didn't have the energy to to do his normal sketching process he actually wrote out the orchestral score as as his composition draft and then I had to turn that back into a vocal score and even worse, I had to play it to him. <laughs> so did you, in a sense, then have to gain his trust? Because this sounds like quite a responsible thing to do for, for a composer. Well, I suppose so. I mean, he'd known my work to a certain extent. I'd done small-scale works, yes, but this was, this was something that it was, it was way beyond what I'd done for him before. But I had also, at that stage, started working with Imogen Holst, who was, was able to recommend me. And I also had known Britain's uh, remarkable music assistant, Rosamund Strode, who was a, a wonderful mentor in this respect. So if, if it didn't quite come up to scratch, she would be the first one to tell me before it even got to Britain's eyes. Did feedback from Britain come mainly through the post or did you sometimes sit down with him and did he sometimes explain what he was what he was driving at at that time no the turnaround time was so fast that i i didn't go up to albury at all i it just came to me through the post the time when i actually worked directly with him was when he moved on to the orchestral score of death in venice and there because it was a huge task i mean this is a score of some 700 pages or so he needed help in doing for me filling in things that were fairly self-evident or when a passage was repeated and I could I could do it for him then then I would do that and that meant to a certain extent working side by side and showing it to him but again he, he was so busy that the, the thing was so preoccupying that you know we didn't spend much time discussing anything it, it was just a matter it was like being on a sort of production line but again, with some creative input, because if you're if you're sort of you say you're sort of filling in the score, but that that requires a knowledge of how to orchestrate and also knowledge of what he would want from from the orchestra. Well, 
yes, within reason. But generally, I was doing things that were pretty much self-evident. I mean, you know, obviously there's a certain amount of skill there, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't push it to say I wouldn't have done anything that he hadn't set the guidelines for. Later, I mean, the the, the working relationship did, did change, where he specifically asked me to orchestrate on his behalf when he got came too weak. Uh, but at this stage, now, I mean, he he was in charge, and there was very little freedom within the, what I was asked to do. And would it be fair to say that you had some misgivings about the conception of Death and Venice as a project, perhaps not so much musically, but the whole the whole sort of feel of the of the enterprise initially. I did find it difficult. I, I mean, I felt that it was, for one thing, it seemed to be almost too personal a subject. It was it was telling a story which had almost happened in Britain's life, because when the turn of the screw was first performed. I mean, Britain uh, had this obsession with David Hemmings, the, the, the young David Hemmings who played the, the first role. And in fact, the first performance was in Venice. And it seemed to me that this was almost a portrayal of what had happened. Although nothing actually happened, I should put it. But I mean, it, you know, Britain had, had did find Hemmings you know, a, an extraordinary figure and was obsessed with him. So that aspect of it I found I found rather difficult. And I, I also felt, and still feel to some extent, that, that Thomas Mann's story is so complex that to actually reduce it to the simplicity needed for a libretto was actually diminishing it in a way. And I felt while I was working on it that dramatically it didn't really hold up. While I was doing the vocal score, I, I had the sense that the music was it seemed to me almost perilously thin in texture. Now, this was something, as soon as I worked on the full score, I realised I'd been quite wrong. In fact, as soon as Britain put colour into it, it, it brought it to life. And also, dramatically, it worked better on stage than I could possibly have imagined. And I, I do think that most of it works extraordinarily well. It's the most remarkable opera. But I, there are reservations that remain with me, and they're, they're mainly to do with the libretto. But those those wider reservations about the whether the whole project was misguided, what did it take to kind of move you from that position? Was that was that actually hearing it for the first time, or or seeing it rendered on stage, or, or did they only gradually sort of dissolve? It was. I mean, the the experience of the first performance was quite remarkable, and I was there through the orchestral rehearsal, so I saw it growing. And uh, I mean, the, particularly because of, of Peter Pierce's extraordinary performance in the main role of Aschenbach, that was it was such a tour de force. And uh, no, I was I was quite knocked out by it. And in fact, I had the extraordinary experience later that same year, nineteen seventy three, of seeing the performance that they took to Venice. So I saw it in 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 the right place, and it was almost impossible to distinguish you know what was inside the theatre and what was outside. Remarkable experience. And over the years that you worked with Britain, did you feel that he was easy to get to know, or did he did he remain quite self enclosed? I think in in the years, the first years before his heart operation, I mean, it was, and I worked on several other things for him during the festival. He was very friendly, but there were limitations to that. You knew in a sense of that you couldn't ask him certain questions. One, he didn't like discussing his own music. He wasn't that keen on discussing music generally. I mean, he liked easy conversation. I mean, he kept his intellectual life very much to himself and to his close friends and colleagues. And I was still pretty young then, and I didn't know perhaps what questions to ask. I felt I got to know him much better in his last years because he was... He was 
somebody in need of help, but also somebody who had become much gentler and, and responsive, particularly through the influence of Rita Thompson, who was his nurse, who was a wonderful influence on him. And at those times, I mean, I did feel I'd, I'd got much closer. And there was this, this great sympathy of trying to help somebody who, you know, who, who had a great deal of music that he wanted to get out, but lacked the physical capacity to do it. In those later years, did he talk to you more openly about his music or your music or, or music in general? Was that still something he was, he was reticent about? It was still something of a closed job, but I did, I did try harder to talk to him. Although sometimes you would get this strange sort of self-effacing thing. I can remember talking about, um, I'd heard, there were, I think in the either 1975 or 76, the Our Hunting Fathers was performed at the proms and I came, and I came up to see him shortly after that, full of enthusiasm before it, and he seemed rather embarrassed. Uh, and I think, oh, and it was rather over the top as a piece, you know, I was, I was very young. <laughs> And it would be difficult to draw him out still. But we did discuss more. And of course, we were discussing the practicalities of the music because I, I was at that stage, I was playing through for him uh, the sketches at the piano because he'd lost, he'd lost a lot of the use of, of, of his right hand and um, he couldn't play the piano to any satisfaction. It's not that he never composed at the piano, but he would always play through sketches at the end of his day's work. And this was something that he missed and which, which I provided the, the gap. And, and what about, you talked about him being sometimes rather dismissive about his music. I've seen quite a few references to self-doubt, you know, expressing quite severe self-doubt about the value of his mm. music. Was, was that something which remained with him? Was that something you saw evidence of? To a certain extent. I mean, he would come up with these extraordinary remarks you know when uh, in fact my brother and I I'd been working at the third quartet and we decided that the best thing to do when it was written was the two of us would play it as a piano duet which we did and at the end of it I mean he he just looked at us and said well is it any good which seemed to be the most extraordinary remark for a composer at that stage of his life and to who had just written a masterpiece to say but there was a genuine doubt in him. And you find in the letters, extraordinary marks, there's a letter to Piers where he says, I must somehow become a better composer, but how can I do it? And he would often go back to Frank Bridge and saying, I've never quite lived up to what Frank Bridge wanted me to do. And I always have that at the back of my head. So that was evident. And I think if you if you read through the letters, which at that time I had not seen, you do see this strain of a mixture of self-doubt, sometimes a sort of self-deprecation, which is very strange. You know, just after he's completed the serenade, he, he writes writes to a friend saying, it's it's quite interesting stuff, but not, not up to much. <laughs> and this, I think by general estimate, is probably his masterpiece. So there, there's a strain going through it. I saw an aspect of it, but I wasn't, and I did find it strange, but it wasn't something that was a, a huge element. I mean, you know, I've learned so much since those years. It's very easy to start imagining what my reactions were at the time, but I, I took things very much for granted at that time. Now, this, this scene that you just referred to of you and your brother playing the, the third string quartet 
on the piano. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an amazing scene mm. to try to imagine. I mean, I've tried to imagine for a start what the third quartet sounds like on the piano. I mean, that, that, I mean, trying to render it, it must be difficult for a start. So this was the first time that he'd actually heard it other than in his head. No, because I'd been playing it through myself with him. I mean, he, would, he, could, he could play with his left hand. So we, we played it as a sort of <laughs> a three-handed three version. And this was as the sketches progressed. But the idea of playing it through was he did want to hear the thing as a whole other than in his head and i you know i was not much of a pianist and so you know my, my attempts at playing what he got from me was a sort of composer's ear and eyes so i i could i could get my way through it but to actually give a performance it did need the two of us and i had to some of it i had to write out especially for that uh, that occasion because I mean, you can't you can't sustain notes on the keyboard the no. way you can on strings. You can't no. get the harmonics, so it's sort of like well, a black and white photograph of a color painting exactly. or something. Well, that that's that's what it was, and I mean, string quartet translates to piano in in the worst possible mm. way of almost any medium. But I mean, we we did find our way through it, and it certainly worked, and it it made a difference. I think to, I mean, Britain. He still had a few areas where he wasn't entirely sure of what he wanted and I think that confirmed what 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 he wanted and this was this was well in advance of the Amadeus Quartet who didn't come to rehearse it until uh, nearly a year later. That work that his last quartet is also intertwined with Death in Venice isn't it? Yes. It was written just after it or no, simultaneously? No it's a, it's a, it's a three-year gap I mean mm. Death in Venice was completed at the end of the end of 1972 and the string quartet was written in the summer and autumn of 75. But but the, nonetheless there are quotations yes, from the right. opera in the in, in the quartet. What do you make of the way that quartet ends? I think this, I've read quite a lot of speculation about the meaning of the the ending of the of the Passacaglia and the, the fifth movement of that quartet. Well that is one of the few occasions on which Britain did say something to me and he said I, you know I want it to end with a question. And it's a very ambiguous end because in terms of the, the key, it, it's unrelated. It's actually, although the Passacaglia is in E major, it ends with a chord of C sharp minor uh, with a D superimposed underneath it, which which is very ambiguously related to the key. But it, it's very open-ended. It seemed to me at the time, you know, this, as he said, it was a question. It was open-ended. And it's... Naturally, you see that quartet written under the shadow of death. I think I think it clearly was, but you know, there was still plenty of music in him, and he had another year to live. So I don't know quite what the question is, but it seemed to be absolutely appropriate. You couldn't have a, 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 an ending which was a final ending to that particular work. Do you remember when you asked you to orchestrate for him, you mentioned um, mm. Fedra. Was there a moment where he sort of summoned you and said, look, can you, can you take on the orchestration for me? That wasn't, the, wasn't actually with Fedra. Um, that was the, his final work, which was a work written for children's chorus and orchestra, which was called Welcome Ode. Uh, with Fedra, I had to, I reduced his orchestra to piano. But this, yes, he said, you know, I, I, you know, I haven't got the strength to write a full score. Will you do it for me? To which the answer was obviously yes, if, if you think I can. But even then, I was disconcerted because I, I did think that I assumed that his sketch would be have plenty of orchestral markings. But no, it, it didn't. It had a few. But he just handed it over me and said, you know, well, here it is. Just get on with it, which was very surprising and and a little alarming. And did you feel by that stage you had 
absorbed so much of his orchestral style that that you could replicate it. Yes, I, I did think that because one thing it's only as a work written for children it was relatively simple and straightforward and and a fairly small orchestra so it wasn't it wasn't too much of a challenge. And we went through it. I mean, certainly went through it page by page, and most of it he he approved of. But there were several places where he made specific changes. So it was it was a challenge that that I seem to have met. We then were going to go on to work on his last actual last uncompleted work, which was a fairly big cantata written for Rostropovich as conductor of, in his first season with the Washington Symphony Orchestra. It's a cantata based on words by Edith Sitwell called Praise We Great Men. And the last meeting I had with him in uh, November, just, just a few weeks before he died, he handed over what he'd written of the vocal score and said, you know, can you start working on the full score? But we never had a further meeting on that. And that would have been a much more difficult challenge because it was a much more elaborate work. I did go ahead and orchestrate it after his death, but then I had no nothing to rely on but my own, my own resources. And did working so closely with him in those last years leave a mark on you, either as a, a human being or as a, as a as a musician? Would you say? Well, that's as, as the politicians say is is a good question. Um, I suppose in some ways at the time I wasn't aware. Looking back at it, it is such a different picture. And now I meet you know, young composers who were born some way after Britain's death. So I turn into a sort of mythical figure who worked with Britain. But at the time, I mean, I, I, as I say, I was doing a job of work. It became a much more personal thing in the last years. And the experience, I mean, it was... It, to actually sit by the side of a, of a great composer. It particularly, in retrospect, seems to be a, an extraordinary thing to have done. And, and it's it, part of my remarkably unconventional training as a composer is that you know, my, the first thing I worked on was, was Mahler's uncompleted Tenth Symphony, and, and then to work with Britain. Well, I sort of managed to work with two of the greatest composers of the 20th century, almost by accident. So looking back on it, it, it does seem to be a, a, an experience pretty much unparalleled. But at, as I say, at the time, it didn't have the same effect. And, and musically, it didn't have the same effect on me because I, I was working in, in different musical directions at that time. I certainly am aware of it having had a more pervasive influence in later years. But, and also because, I mean, I got to know Britain's music a great deal better over the years as I've, as I've worked both with it and on behalf of the Britain estate. And how do you feel about it now? I mean, and that's, that's also a rather big question, but, you know, with sort of 40 years on or so from his, his death, what sort of place does he hold in your, your musical life? It's a very vital part. I mean, it's something that's very much at the, at, at the core of what I do. But it's, I always say when, when I'm asked what I learned from Britain, I would say more, more than anything, I learned the professionalism of being a composer because uh, and I didn't actually realize that Britain was the most professional composer that one could possibly meet I mean his ability to meet deadlines to work at great speed to get things right it, it was an extraordinary ability and so, so that was that was a tremendous schooling and it's that more than the actual music itself which has had a, had a profound influence 
Britain's own position, I think, now, and it's it's extraordinary to see in the centenary how uh, all pervasive it, it seems to be, and that people's appetite is is not satisfied by it. I mean, I, I was worried when we've been because we've been planning within the estate and the Britain Pierce Foundation, we've been planning for the centenary for ten years. I was worried that there might be a sort of overkill, that you know, there'd be so much Britain play that people would just want to turn it off but it doesn't seem it seems the appetite just continually grows and it's something extraordinary about Britain's reputation that unlike most composers whose reputation gets goes through quite a big dip after their death it just hasn't happened with him very few composers that is paralleled by uh possibly I mean Shostakovich has had the same that the reputation has only grown since his death. And I think part of that is the fact that if they had a dip in their reputations, it was actually while they were still alive. So that Britain, certainly himself, felt himself somewhat out of fashion in the, in the 60s and early 70s. But that had begun to turn the corner by the time he died. And it's never looked back. The music has just grown. The number of his works which are in the repertoire seems to be growing too. There is a, an extraordinary number of works that, 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 for instance, were not published at the time of his death. I mean, a measure of that, I mean, because he was extraordinarily precocious as a child. But we're, uh, at the Britain Pierce Foundation, we're compiling a, a thematic catalogue of every work, including juvenilia and unfinished works. And the measure of the size of, of, of that is the fact that the Opus 1 work, his Sinfonietta, will become work, I think, number 735 in the catalogue. A lot of that work is, is, is not of great interest, but some of it is extraordinarily fascinating. And he kept every single note that he wrote, often revisited the work of his childhood himself. And you feel that sometimes works that were abandoned or, or discarded were ones that he just moved on too quickly because he was too busy to, to go back to them. Some extraordinary works that were published quite soon after his death, uh, including, the, for instance, there's a piece called The Temporal Variations for Oboe and Piano, which no less a musician than Heinz Holliger says is the greatest work for oboe written in the 20th century. Well, Britain discarded it after the first performance. Something happened in the performance. I think sometimes you would find with Britain that if something upsetting happened during the performance, it would affect his view of the work. So there are quite a few works which, which disappeared. And you mentioned his great professionalism as a composer. I suppose the sort of obverse of that is are the charges that he was too slick, he was too on the surface, he was too quick. He, you know, mm. do, do you do you see those as as ever diminishing, or do you think they're always going to be the the naysayers who who just find him too sort of surf, surface glittery? I think that attitude is one that has largely gone. I mean, there's still people who don't like Britain's music and 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 find it either difficult or, or uncongenial. But the accusation of being too clever by half, which was certainly thrown at him in the 30s by nearly all the critics, I think is something that's gone away. I think people have forgotten, actually, that the pace at which composers always used to work. And, I mean, you've only got to look at the, the output of, of earlier composers. I mean, just to look at what Mozart has achieved by the age of 35 to realise that to say Britain was writing too fast and too slick was just nonsense. He just had extraordinary ability. And the ability to write at speed is something that very few composers possess in that way. I'm going to ask you an invidious question, Colin. I'm going to ask you if you if you could only take one work of Britain to a desert island, which one would you take? I've 
said when asked that question before that it might be that the serenade for tenor, horn and strings, because there's something so perfect about that work. I'm not sure I'd change from that position because it, once you start moving into into other areas, there's so many other works that, that could be brought in, but that work still never fails to, to move and, and impress me with, with how perfect it is. Colin Matthews. You can find out more about Faber's publishing on Britain by visiting the website at faber.co.uk. You'll also find several other Britain-related podcasts there. From me for now, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.